0: Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special Audio Highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on West Coast Live is the author of other books including uh, Garlic and Sapphires and uh, the memoirs Comfort Me with Apples and Tender at the Bone. Her literary history includes adventures, writing about adventures, living in Berkeley, her time as a food critic for the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times, and she is currently uh, editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine, and she has written another memoir where she once again talks about her mother that she wrote about in very amusing ways in her other memoirs, in moving ways. But this is uh, the result of discovering some of her mother's letters, and this is called Not Becoming My Mother and Other Things She Taught Me Along the Way. Please welcome Ruth Reichel to West Coast Live. <laughs> First of all, I, I don't know if you heard the audience true story about the gentleman who's now a surgeon who used to be at the front of the house in Chanterelle and Tribeca. Yes, I did. The gentleman right there, he said you had to put in multiple phone lines as a result of your rave review. <laughs>
1: Thank you very much. And I was happy to see that you got some cheese because one of, one of the things that Chanterelle was, did way before most people were doing it was they did an absolutely spectacular cheese program years before it was, you know, a rigueur, so.
0: So you remember your meal there, or meals?
1: Oh, I remember many wonderful meals there, yes. <laughs>
0: Uh, th- there was a, this is a little off the topic, but I, w- I was reading a book by uh, a woman who had worked in, in one of Thomas in Thomas Keller's New York restaurant and talked about how the waiters and waitresses went, and they went Renaissance dance training to learn how to move and work together in the room. But when the night in The New York Times, one of your successors came, and the New York Times uh, f- food uh, correspondent came, they were they knew when he was there. But it threw the kitchen into a tizzy because between courses, he would go into the bathroom to make his notes and it completely screwed up how they were t- planning to plate the food and deliver it. Is he out of the restroom back? You know, can we <laughs> s- deliver the food? <laughs> the dance was off. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, this is a, this is a lovely story uh, of your of your mother, but also of yourself. It came out of a talk that you uh, gave when you received a Matrix in Communication, a Matrix Award, uh, when you said that um, you were happy that you had not become your mother and that your mother had inspired you uh, in ways that you realized were not were to not be like her. And then you discovered letters that she had written where you learned that she was in many ways, uh, uh, she had more profound feelings about her experience of being your mother than you'd first given her credit for.
1: Yeah, she turned out when I met her, and I, I do think that most of us sort of invent our parents for ourselves and carry that person around with us for all of our lives. And when I decided to meet the woman Who was a woman as opposed to my mother, she turned out to be much more self-aware than I had any idea of, much more generous, and a woman with a very strong sense of what life for women could be, although it had not been for her. She wanted to be a doctor. My mother wanted to be a doctor, and her parents said to her, you're not pretty enough. And if you become a doctor, you'll never find a husband. And so, you know, let's just keep in mind what's really important, Um, you know, forget that. And so she spent her whole life doing what was expected of her. She was a very good girl. And she realized in late middle age that what she had done her whole life was live her mother's dream, Um, that she had, you know, she had gotten this PhD in music, although she wasn't musical in any way, that she had married the suitable man that they wanted for her, although he was not, would not have been her choice, Um, that everything she had ever done was for somebody else, and that um, what she taught me to do was not be a good girl. You know, don't, don't do what I want you to do. Do what you want to do. She was disappointed when you got married. She was very disappointed because (laughs) she had... I mean, one of the things I discovered in this box of letters was these letters from her mother as she's getting older and older, and she's... after she gets her PhD, she goes home to Cleveland, she opens a bookstore, and she's 23, and she doesn't have a husband, and she's 24, and she's 25. And her mother starts writing to her, how we pray for Mr. (laughs) Wright, And every year it's, you know, there was a full moon last night and I prayed that this will be the year when you find a husband. And so my mother's message to me was, you don't have to get married if you don't want to. That is not how a woman defines success. And you can have a perfectly happy life if you don't get married. So what do I do? I get married at (laughs) twenty-one.
0: You get married in a road, in the road.
1: I get married. My my husband um, was doing road art, so we got married on an unfinished highway. (laughs) Uh, And my mother was... I couldn't understand why she was so sort of nasty about my marriage. And in going through this box, I suddenly begin to understand that she was sort of jumping up and down and saying, Didn't you get the message? I told you you didn't have to do this. Um, but um, she gave me many other gifts. I mean, one of the really extraordinary things she did for me, I found the first, the earliest letter in this box is a letter that her father wrote to her when she was 16 where he said, you are a dear girl, and you have a fine mind, but you will have to accept the fact that you're homely. And finding a husband will not be easy. And it just comes at you like a stab. I mean, it's, and I thought, why would she have saved this letter? I mean, she saved this letter her whole life. And I realized that in it was sort of everything, that had defined her life, and when I was born, she wrote on this little scrap of paper, no matter what this little girl looks like, I am going to do my best to make sure that she feels pretty. And the generosity of that just astounds me.
0: So often, uh, parents end up raising their kids the opposite that they were raised, you know, they want to sort of correct those... With the errors, the experiences, the bad ways, you
1: know? Um, well, I think that my mother did that as well. I mean, having been blighted by her mother's expectation that she do exactly what her mother wanted me to do, she raised me
0: to not do what she wanted me to do. But, but in kind of a subversive
1: way. It wasn't overt. No, she never said... I mean, that was the thing that was so heartbreaking to me was that she never said any of these things to me. She was directing me very subtly. I mean, she was very conscious of it. But all of her lessons were, um, you know, she was, you know, really. Um, I mean, the most generous part of it was, at one point, she writes to her psychiatrist. Sometimes it will be worth my while to be ridiculous, and I thought why would you want to be ridiculous? And I realized that she was so disappointed with herself that she literally made herself ridiculous for me in a way of saying, don't be me. This is not the model for a woman. And doing that, I mean, I can't imagine doing that. I think we all want our children's respect more than anything. and. My mother loved me enough to sabotage my respect for her and to say, I am not a model. Never to say it overtly, Mm -hmm. but to, you know, make sure that I would not be her. And so when I wake up in the morning grateful not to be my mother, that's what she wanted me.
0: She was the anti-model.
1: Exactly. She was leading by negative example. (laughs)
0: But hard to tell at the time, I imagine.
1: Really hard to tell. I mean, I had no idea. I mean, all I wanted to do was get away from her.
0: (laughs) You know, the the story of the the dinner party where guests are poisoned uh, by her cooking. Uh, The story of uh, the brownie troop snack that she prepared based on the moldy chocolate pudding in the refrigerator. Well, a little mold never hurt anyone. Mixing it up with marshmallow cream and crumpled pretzels and... Then getting fired as a brownie troop mom as a result. I
1: mean, yeah. You know. yeah, no, I mean, she did um, really ludicrous things. I mean, she gave me great material. I mean, <laughs> and I have used this great material in all of my books. And part of what this book is about is having discovered that she was much more than this very funny figure who was in my other books, I wanted to show who she really was, that, that she was this fiercely intelligent, very ambitious woman who was uh, really, I think, the best kind of mother she could possibly have been.
0: The, uh, the uh, box of letters, how, how did you come to find that letters? What were, what were the letters like? Were they always letters? Were they sometimes notes, diary, journal?
1: Well, I had always known that there was this box, but, um, I didn't I had never wanted to go there. And so when I am finally on the verge of writing this book, I go down into the basement and I s- find sort of hoping I won't find it, you know, knowing that there's going to be trouble in this box for me. And I open it up and it's a jumble. It's it's not in any kind of order. And my mother didn't keep a diary. What she did do was she wrote notes to herself. She scribbled these notes and she threw them into a drawer. And my father had gathered this all up along with shopping lists and beginnings of stories and letters from her parents, letters my mother wrote to friends, to psychiatrists, um, prescriptions, medical prescriptions. I mean, there, it was a huge jumble. And I looked down and I saw my mother's handwriting which was this very vivid writing, and I just sort of thought, I can't do this. And I'm a little superstitious, so I thought, okay, what I'm gonna do is I'm going to go de- I'm gonna pick up a piece of paper, and whatever it tells me to do, I'm going to do. And I was sort of hoping that I would get a piece of paper that said, close this box up and go away. <laughs> but I pick up a piece, a little note my mother had written when she was in her late 70s. And it said, who am I? What do I want? Why do I stand in my own way so often? And I thought, if you were looking for a message, (laughs) uh, you got it. And clearly, my next mission is to find out who my mother was. And that's what I did in this, um, it was a, an emotionally really harrowing time, going through this box.
0: You came across a number of unopened letters that you had returned, not wanting to read them.
1: Yes, my mother had, when I got married, my mother was, the night before my wedding, she came upstairs and She said to me, well, I guess I don't need to tell you anything about the birds and bees. After all, we'd been living together for a while. Um, But she said, you know, you do know that after you get married you will no longer be Ruth Reichel. You are going to be Mrs. Douglas Hollis. And I said, "You know, don't you dare ever call me by that name. I mean, the idea that I was going to lose not only my last name, but my first name at all. I mean, I, I was now going to disappear into, you know, Mrs. It was just horrifying to me. And I said, if you ever write me a letter addressed to Mrs. Douglas Hollis, I will return it unopened. So sure enough, my mother <laughs> sends me a letter addressed to Mrs. Douglas Hollis. And I wrote on it, returned to Sender" and sent it back to her. And um, there it was in the box unopened And I opened it up, and sure enough, my mother... I mean, it was a completely provocative move on my mother's part. She had known that I wouldn't open it, and it was, in fact, a letter she had written to herself, (laughs) where she was saying, your children are gone. Now it is time for you to go out and find your own life. And what was so sad was... It took her a long time to do it. It was another almost 20 years after that point before she really took her own advice and found her own life.
0: That was in in part uh, after her husband died which really set her back. Um, And then eventually she sort of arose from that and chose to find work as the uh, as the uh, the meaning of life, and became her own person when she was in her 80s.
1: It was, for me, the... I mean, that was the happy discovery of this book, which was, after my mother did go to be, after my father died, she went to bed for four years. I mean, she pulled the covers over her head, and she did nothing for four years. I mean, I paid her bills. I I mean, she literally did nothing. And she finally pulls herself together. And what it is, is she had a friend who was ill, who needed hospice care. And my mother, who had wanted to be a doctor, finally decides that she can't be a doctor, it's too late, but she can take care of people. She can be useful. And she invites this friend to come stay with her. And she takes care of her for six or seven months. And in being useful to someone else, She finds her purpose in life. And she finally, she writes to herself, your mother has been dead for 25 years. Why do you care what she thinks anymore? And she gets her mother's voice out of her head. And she does exactly what she wants to do. And she opens her house up to young people. She takes them in. She finally, for the last few years of her life, finds out Who she really was, who she was meant to be. And she is very, very happy. And for me, one of the great things about having written this book is I'm hearing from some of these people who I didn't know, who she took in. And one young woman said to me, you know, your mother saved my life. I had never met an old lady like this before. But, you know, she was wearing these bright red linen clothes and this outlandish jewelry. And she took me in, and she—I I was having a terrible problems with my family. And she took me in, and she told me, you know, she took me to, re- to hotel, to um, museums, and she showed me how to look at art. And she told me that I had to please myself, and that I needed—I didn't need to worry about my parents. And um, she really set me on the path to life. And it was so wonderful to discover that, um, it's really never too late to find out how to be happy.
0: Do you, uh, so the voice of your mother in your head, your own head, has changed tone and timbre in some way?
1: Totally. I mean, one of the things I'm grateful for is that I did not meet my mother until after I had written my other books, because I could not have written these books. If I had known who my mother really was, I mean, she is now a completely different person for me. I mean, but she is now a very wise voice. I mean, she is someone who is saying, um, find out who you are, be that person in the most powerful way you can be that person.
0: She wanted to be uh, surrounded by literature and music, art, uh, and she found herself caught up in the world of cooking and looking after children and, and keeping a house neat and tidy for uh, her first husband, whose name was Ernest. Um, was unhappy when this didn't happen and would write letters about not having the right sauce or missing dessert and so forth. That marriage ended after a couple of years. Sometime later, she found another man whose name was Ernst, yes. which I thought was interesting. <laughs> um, uh, but a much happier and a much more, uh, a marriage more of a meeting of minds and spirits where she did still have these burdens that she felt that she should should take on, but were generally happier, and she did find things to do that pleased her.
1: Well, I mean, it's. In, I think my parents had a very good marriage. I mean, they, they loved and respected each other. And what's interesting to me is it wasn't enough. And although my father was really supportive, uh, being a woman in the 50s was... Um, you didn't have to be married to a male chauvinist pig. I mean, society was enough to keep you from really having work. And um, you know, all these women who had gone off to, you know, w- do really meaningful work during World War II, were told to go home, um, let the boys have the job, and be little housewives. And and then miserable. you cr- and then you chronicle the
0: two classic cures that were prescribed that that people now realize they're both devastating, one psychoanalysis and the other prescription drugs.
1: Yes, and, um, you know, these women were psychoanalyzed by condescending, patronizing men, and the letters to my mother's psychiatrist are, they are devastating. I mean, this man was awful. And then they were drugged, and the ads I found, I found prescriptions for Elevil, Thorazine, I mean hundreds of drugs and when I went and looked at the ads for these drugs um, they're all about making, you know, they're they're all in medical journals, and they're all about making your female patients into happy housewives and they're all about, you know, give her dexedrine and she will um, vacuum happily. (laughs)
0: Well, what better note than to wish you Happy Mother's Day on on that. The book is called Not Becoming My Mother and Other Things She Taught Me Along the Way by Ruth Reichel. And it's uh, published by... So thank you very much for being here on West Coast Live. It is a pleasure.
1: Thank you.
0: This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here. And we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.